millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, and I'm also Director of the Children's Policy Centre. I am normally here with my fantastic pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter, but today I'm recording solo because Anna Greta has been called away to talk about important issues of health and climate change um, at another place. We will have Anna Greta back next week, though, and we hopefully will hear about some of the things she's been doing this week. As our regular listeners know, Policy Forum Pod is based here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University. We have an amazing array of degree programs and short courses that cover so many of the issues that we discuss here on the pod. As the new year approaches, you may like to think about expanding your knowledge, engaging in the kinds of conversations that we have here at Crawford. And if so, please visit our website, which is crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Last week, we wrapped up our little bundle of episodes on housing and the deep challenges that we are facing around housing affordability and access with a fabulous conversation with Casey Chambers from Anglicare Australia. Across that series of episodes or that bundle of episodes, we heard what people are facing in terms of affordability, particularly in the rental market. And we also heard about the very low quality of housing that so many people are forced to endure. That conversation with Casey that we had last week reminded us that housing is a human right, and it is a foundation for everything else that we do in our lives. So if you missed that conversation with Casey, I would really encourage you to to listen to it. It was an amazing set of reflections and insights from someone who is not just a thought leader in this area, um, but is also someone who is bringing about action for change. We only have a handful of discussions to go this year. We're expecting our last episode to come out in the first week of December, and over the next couple of weeks, we're planning to reflect on the recent COP27 summit in Egypt with some guests who regular listeners will be very familiar with, and we'll hear about what happened inside COP27. 
Before we wrap up for the year, we'll also have some more friends of the show in our final discussion to reflect on the year that was, but also to do some creative imagining about what we might want the future and what we might want 2023 to look like. But today, we've got a wonderful guest with us to talk about First Nations justice, an issue that couldn't be more important to the future of Australia. And specifically, we're going to discuss some of the measures in the recent federal budget and much wider issues around justice reinvestment, around institutional reform, around reconciliation, and also a little bit around the importance of housing as we think about all of these things. I'm delighted to have with me today Professor Valerie Coombs. And Valerie, perhaps you could introduce yourself to our guests. Okay, my name's Valerie Coombs. I belong to the Kwandamooka people from Mindirabal, North Strabroke Island. I'm currently working as the Director of the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at Australian National University. Valerie, it's great to have you with us and wonderful to have you leading CAPER. We're going to be talking about some of the measures in the recent budget around justice in this conversation. But as our regular listeners know, we've just recorded a series of episodes on housing in Australia. And one of the themes that came up throughout that series is how important housing is for all sorts of reasons across the spectrum of social and economic life. And of course, many of those conversations were pretty depressing, particularly around accessibility and affordability of housing at the moment. But Val, I believe you've recently been involved in a housing conference in Queensland, and Rockhampton is a really interesting example where the Aboriginal community has had access to affordable housing, in some cases for generations, and that that has made a significantly positive impact in a range of areas. I wonder if we could start today by you just telling us a little bit about what's been going on in Rockhampton. Well, it was, it, it's not all of Rockhampton. It's only one small part of Rockhampton. Um, my son's children were going to a school called Crescent Lagoon. It's a primary school. Um, and a lot of the people that um, attend, the, the, the children that attend that school have had access to affordable housing for quite some time in that town and it shows in, in of course with children's school attendance and um, they didn't need to have closed the gap at that school because the Aboriginal kids are excelling at that school and they've got a lot of um, language programs and local traditional owners who teach at the school. So it's an excellent example of when the right support's provided in the right circumstances that you can close the gap and that's one of the initiatives that Pat Turner and the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, um, NACHO, was so um, adamant about keeping um, housing on the agenda for Close the Gap. It's so fundamental to everything else, isn't it? Once we don't have secure housing, then everything else starts to fall apart. Well, it is. And if you look at the history of 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 Australia and the efforts that were put into Australia, particularly in relation to the post-war reconstruct, post-World War II reconstruction, um, the Australian government funded various states and territories for, um, for want of a better word, housing, commission housing for families and people were able to rent housing, commission houses with the op- 
option of buying those houses. And that worked well for most people in the 50s, 60s, and then again the boom in the 70s so that people who bought their houses in those years, those houses are worth a lot of money now. And unfortunately, as First Nations people, we missed out on that boom and we won't see that boom again in terms of economic advantage. Yeah, we've we've moved beyond it, haven't we? That's right, yeah. Though in that, that example you talked about of, of that one area in Rockhampton, is, is there home ownership amongst Aboriginal oh, people? There's some home ownership, but it's, it's mostly about affordable housing, I think. I don't know about how good home ownership is. I don't have those statistics. But I know a lot of the people that I am am aware of that they have access if they have access if and when they have access to affordable housing, it certainly creates a better lifestyle and more opportunities. And that's in in terms of health, education, employment, everything. Having a decent house to live in is is crucial. And like uh, as Aboriginal or First Nations people. It's it's important now more than ever to have um, access to housing because we have different diseases to contend with post-colonisation in terms of how we have to live. We have to have running water. We have to have sewerage. We have to have all of those um, services in our housing now because of what we have to contend with. Though. You know, you've mapped out so powerfully the importance of housing on so many fronts from, you know, children being able to go to school through to contending with, with a whole range of diseases. And, of course, land is so critically important for First Nations peoples as well. I, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about some of the work that um, CAPER is involved in looking at international examples of where governments have underwritten land for Indigenous communities and, and whether there are examples internationally that we should be looking to. Well, there's some of the things that CAPE is interested in doing is is um, in terms of uh, treaty and the referendum is to get some sort of an estimate of the value of the land that was taken and what that land would be or stolen of what that land would be worth in today's market. Um, that's an economic research activity that I believe needs to be undertaken so that we can get some idea of what we missed out on in terms of the, the way the nature of the way the country was settled. But when you look at my community and particularly North Strabroke Island, no one really can afford to buy a house over there. The, the cost of land has gone up and we've got native we got native title on North Strabroke Island or Minjurabar in 2011 and then we got native title on the island north of that which is Magumpin or Morton Island in 2019 and we looked at options and when Tim Wilson was the human rights commissioner he believed that um, the right to economic development was a human right and he came to interview me and I talked to him about the right to home ownership. And we had a banking forum. We held that on North Strabroke Island. We invited all the major banks 
to talk about an option of home ownership on native title land. We had the idea that we would authorise an authorisation process as part of a native title process where you have to consult all of the traditional owners and the claim uh, the native title holders and you have an authorisation meeting. If they agree, then we could organise for people to get 99-year leases for just the cost of the outgoings for land and which if they had a 99-year lease, then they have the right to build. We spoke to the banks. The banks could not get their heads around it. Um, At the time I was on the Board of Indigenous Business Australia, we wanted to do some research in relation to how you would mortgage a house without the bank being able to take a mortgage over the land and that sort of stopped everybody in their tracks. So at the moment we've got some economists here at CAPA, the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research, looking at the models that they use in other settler colonies because we're a settler colony, um, which means we were colonised and the First Nations people were reduced to a minority and the people aren't leaving. So we're not a decolonised nation. And if you compare with other parts of Canada, um, that the banks, as I'm told, this is only early days, but the banks or the government underwrites the ability for banks to lend on land that belongs to First Nations people so that people can actually have affordable housing on their own land. I don't know. We want to build a model to put it to government to make it easy for people to understand that so that we can provide government with some options because if we continue to expect government to provide the money, we know that government is moved away since the post-war reconstruction. They've moved away from public housing as an option. They're more interested in supporting um, first home ownership grants and um, tax relief for people who own more than one house so they can negative gear that house. But in terms of public housing, most governments, state and territory are not putting as much money as they need to. And I I remember a Salvation Army officer told me once, and I mean that's not where I get all my research from, but if government put as much money into the first homeowners as it did into public housing, it would clear the waiting list in one year. And I know that people in Brisbane and other areas have to wait six to eight years for a house. That's a long time. And to be at the mercy of private landlords or real estate agents, and if your landlord decides to sell your house, you might not be able to send your children to the same school. You have to be living in the area for a public school. And if you move children to another school, it takes them, you know, three to six months to catch up. So having stability in your housing is important for education and, as we mentioned, health and well-being. So I think... I don't know that we will ever see the um, economics headed towards public housing as we did in post-war reconstruction, and that is really a shame. But, of course, Nacho has been fighting that fight in relation to First Nations people. 
Val, the models that you're talking about with with thinking about how banks can can be part of the solution here, how they can think differently about lending, you know, is really exciting and they're exciting models for First Nations people and, and perhaps for the wider population. But as I was listening to you talking, I was wondering whether we need to think rather differently about housing um, for First Nations people and, and for different communities across Australia, perhaps. We we tend to have a model of an individual family living in a house um, and the responsibility for the payment of that house, and the upkeep of the house being with a nuclear family. Uh-huh. Do we need to think a bit differently? So we're thinking beyond the nuclear family to, you know, the way communities invest in housing or the way extended families um, invest in and own housing. I think I'd go back to the um, Industrial Revolution in England and the move for people to move into urban areas and that was so that people could reside as close as possible to the capitalist modes of production so they could actually get to and from work. And also the breakdown of families from extended families and as I understand it, in terms of inheritance, capitalism and the Industrial Revolution saw extended families shrink. So, for example, when you inherit people, it's either your mother, father, sister, brother, same with when you, say, for example, you work in the public service and you get bereavement leave. You only get bereavement leave for your mother, father, sister, brother or immediate children, not your cousins, not your grandmother. So, and I'm told that most communities and people throughout the world had an extended family until inheritance came in. And that's when families divided into more immediate families and not your extended families. Val, that maps so powerfully for us how particular points in history and in white history put us on um, a track of thinking, a particular way of thinking that perhaps doesn't meet the needs of all parts of our community and, you know, there are ways that we could think very, very differently about housing and a, and a range of other issues. But I did want to shift the conversation towards the recent federal budget where, you know, we may be seeing the beginnings of some different ways of thinking um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on on some of the big initiatives in that budget. The government has allocated um, a bit over $80 million to justice reinvestment initiatives to be delivered in partnership with First Nations communities with the aim of addressing the, the shockingly high rates of incarceration of First Nations peoples. Why are these programs so important? And is that package that we saw in the budget a step in the right direction? Well, it's a, of course any um, any move that a government makes to address the overrepresentation of First Nations people in the criminal justice system is a good move. But it's not really a new move. If you look at the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, um, a lot of the recommendations were in relation to it wasn't just as reinvestment as it as we um, acknowledge it now, but it was all about cre- preventing. And prevention is one of and one of the things they found with the Royal Commission was most of the people that were incarcerated was there um, that a lot of the the people that died in custody, the levels of education were quite low. 
um, people who don't go to school um, to, uh, to compulsory levels, um, all of those things. And some of the recommendations were in relation to supporting families and um, services for families, but they were some of the first programs that were cut by the government um, after the Royal Commission. So government knows, but it's a bit like public housing. It costs a lot of money, but in the long run it saves money. But that's very hard because at the end of the day, governments are about averting criticism and getting re-elected. We like to think that governments are about looking after everybody, but really they have to, if they make too many decisions for First Nations or poorer people, they face the risk of not being re-elected. So the governments have to keep that balance and if you look at the statistics, we're only 3% of the Australian population. So the government really has to keep 97% of the population happy and 97% of the population are not First Nations people. So it's not a popular position to be in and that's why it's so important for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to provide um, solutions themselves. And that's what we try to do on North Stradbroke Island rather than wait for government. But that comes with its issues as well in terms of Australia's inability to understand and embrace even native title that was handed down 30 years ago and state, local and gov federal governments still grapple with that concept. So Australia has a long way to go in terms of what it needs to do. But, of course, justice reinvestment is a great idea, but, again, we're reliant on the goodwill of government for it to continue. It's not something that's going to happen automatically. Um, and you've got, again, you're reliant on the goodwill of government. But what's happened on North Stradbroke Island is we got native title and we decided we would invest in land and jobs. That was our economic development model. We have a lot of jobs. We have more jobs than we have people now and that's where we want to go. But it has been uh, an effective crime prevention program because people are working and that's been one of the, the outcomes that we hadn't expected that would would occur, but it has because so many young of our younger people are working on country. It's culturally appropriate for them. They enjoy their work. That makes them proud. And I had one of my nephews came to the Native Title Conference to give a presentation on our traditional fire management processes. And he said to me, Auntie Valerie, I used to get locked up. But guess how long since I've been locked up? I said, how long, nephew? He said, seven years. And guess how long I've been working as a ranger? I said, how long? He said, seven years. And I spoke to a friend of mine who's a magistrate and she said to me, you can always tell when there's a gap in, in their um, incarceration. It's usually when they're employed. So there's a whole lot of things that we can do for our, but we did that for ourselves. We did that ourselves. How did you go about creating those jobs well, on North Stradbroke Well, some of it was by 
we had a joint managed national park, so we've got some range of positions. But in 2014, we had huge bushfires on North Stradbroke Island. And my nephew and a few other Aboriginal men went down to the fire command centre. And I watched them and they spoke to all the fire. There were different firemen, different uniforms for different, you know, rural firefighters and this type of fire. I had no idea. But anyway, they were looking at all the maps and our men said to those firemen, the fire will jump the road here. It'll burn to the water level at the swamp here. And it wasn't until the third day that those fire people realised that our Aboriginal men knew what they were talking about. And they did such a good job that the state government decided to redirect the funding for fire prevention and township fire management to us as a registered native title body corporate to manage, which we had done for 47,000 years, we'd managed the area. And when we first got native title, we went on country for the Joint Managed National Park and our elders were there and they said, well, you know you have to burn night time and winter time. That's your fire prevention. And the first thing that the government said was we don't pay overtime. So you could see that they were thinking in monetary terms and you know, the, this, the old saying that only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun made you realise that it just seemed bizarre to everybody that you would burn, they burnt until it was black or they burnt in the wrong time of the year. So our people knew how to manage that and they still are managing. So we got that funding direct and that's how we can employ people. They do the fire prevention work and they do it well and they do it like no other. Now that's an incredibly an incredible example of of the power of indigenous knowledge and the benefit to indigenous people in terms of employment but the the benefits to all of society it's it's an incredible example we're just going to take a, a very short break now, so listeners, please don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment to continue this conversation with Valerie Coombs. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. I'm here with Valerie Coombs from the Australian National University, and Valerie is, is currently the head of the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research. Val, uh, just before the, we went to the break, um, we were talking about 
a range of issues related to the recent budget and, and beyond. One of the things that I did want to ask you about was the allocation in the recent budget of $14 million, so not a huge amount of money, but some money, to First Nations language in schools. How important is that issue of language and the teaching of language to children to justice and reconciliation and and what more needs to be done um, to ensure that that languages are preserved and and passed on and used? Oh, it's look... um when you look at Aboriginal language, we've got a huge language language reclamation program on North Stradbroke Island. Our language has always been there. We just have to. But people were forced to speak English. It was illegal to speak your own language, particularly on the eastern side in the areas that were colonised early in colonial history. But when you look at... Um, some areas that were colonised where the missionaries went in first, and particularly Lutherans, they taught a lot of people in their, they learnt the local language of the local Aboriginal people, taught them in their own language and taught English as a second language, which is how it should be done. But rather, most people... Um, expected everybody to speak English. Now, you lose a lot in translation. Most people today, and I had a, a dear friend of mine named Gordon Briscoe, one of the first people to complete a PhD here at ANU, who said to me, we all think that we're speaking English and that we can master English until you get to the point where you have to write in English. Um, I learnt to write in English firstly at school as creative writing and then I was a nurse for a while and then I worked in the public service and then I went to university. So all different styles of writing which created challenges for me but I still have trouble making myself understood. It's much easier for me to make myself understood with my own people because you can relax and it's easy to make myself understood because we speak a combination of Aboriginal language and English all the time, every day, Um, and you don't realise how much you do it until you're trying to express yourself exclusively in English. There seems to be a lot lacking and there's a lot of words that have no translation to English or interpretation in English. So it's very important that we retain our language because that's how we speak to our ancestors. And, for example, the word in for Kwandamuka, the word for um, the pandanus palm is the same word for the mud crab because of the way the pandanus palm looks. And also words for oyster are the same word as for the wild hopbush because it came from the same place in the dreaming and when the wild hopbush is flowering, that's when you know the oysters are fat. So hanging on to your language is not just about like you translate English into German. It holds your culture and it holds your beliefs and it's not easy to... We've got Dr Sandra Delaney, whose PhD was on language reclamation. She's done an extraordinary job on North Stradbroke Island of embedding, we do dual signage um, everywhere that we can. 
Um, for example, James Cook sailed past North Stradbroke Island when he did his thing on the eastern side. And he named the area Point Lookout, Point Lookout because of all the rocks. But the traditional word for Point Lookout is Molumba, which means place of many rocks. So it's the same type of word. We put dual signage at Point Lookout because the tourism industry says we they like dual signage. The people at Point Lookout have cut those signs down three times and thrown them into the ocean. So the whole idea of dual signage is really quite – look at Uluru when they changed the name to Uluru and stopped people climbing Uluru. There was a lot of pushback. So we've got a long way to go in this country. I think it's a great initiative of the government to embed our languages and let us reclaim our languages and uphold our languages. The trouble I have is sometimes with the linguists saying it's a dying language, it's not a dying language, it just has to be reclaimed. And we have to be proud and we have to be able to do it. But I can see the difficulties associated with that area because it's a high um, tourist area and it's the land's worth a lot of money. They did not want to embrace the two languages even though I thought it was ironic that it, it's, the, it's similar meanings. We were quite happy to keep Point Lookout there. We didn't erase that. So it is a good initiative. It's a great initiative by this government. But I think Australia's still got a long way to go to embrace um, the language and some of the things that they don't realise that some of the towns um, if you're strictly interpreted, they'd be horrified if they knew what the meaning of those words were. So that's really interesting as well. So we can have a bit of a giggle at times about what the real word meaning, the words mean, you know. So, yeah, it's important for our maturity as a nation, I think. Yes, I, I think that idea of a mature nation being able to to honestly look at its history and with imagination and care look towards its future is so incredibly important. And what you've said about language, you know, and the way in which First Nations peoples use language to hold culture, to talk to ancestors, to, to hold connection is just so powerful and, and quite beautiful um, when we think about what language really means to us. Yeah, and, and like even towns, you know, like Townsville, right? It's named after one of the worst or best blackbird as they were. So the town of Townsville, the city of Townsville is named after that. So do we change that name? Everyone opposes that. So, and I think they're doing it in United States and other areas too, you know, statues and things like that. So how do we decolonise the history? How do we decolonise all of the bad things that happened. And should we have a town named after one of the most successful blackbirders in, in Queensland history? I mean, to me, Val, the answer seems fairly obvious that no, we shouldn't if we want to have a nation that's based on justice. But yeah, but we're still yeah. a long way from that. But in Townsville, people would want to be, uh, politicians would want to be re-elected and they realised that if they made a brave move for the better, 
that could probably mean they would jeopardise their ability to be re-elected. And that's the political reality that we're dealing with here, sadly. Well, it, it is sad um, and it's so well, incredibly important that we confront these issues. Sorry, Val. Yeah, no, you're right. Sorry. Strabroke Island, for example, we um, purchased the campgrounds over there, which was Strati Camping. And uh, as the prescribed body, registered native title body corporate that held native title, we purchased, we went in partnership with Indigenous Business Australia and we purchased Strati Camping. And we changed it to Minjiraba Camping because Minjiraba is a traditional name for that area. And the, the criticism and the attacks that were made upon us for changing it to Minjiraba Camping were nothing short of astounding and horrifying. So, and even the name we gave, we gave Aboriginal names to the national park and things like that. That's really created a lot of criticism. But I think perhaps the next generation, like I say, my mother never saw, had the opportunity to see the benefit of native title. But yet my grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, will drive around Strabroke Island taking it for granted that they will see the signs, Nari Jara, which means the land my mother, uh, Joint Managed National Park, Kwandamuka Aboriginal land, those huge big signs that are there. So it's a generational thing and people will take that for granted that that's part of the landscape. So it really takes time for people to get used to that. And social change is very painfully slow and it takes a brave leader to embrace that. Yeah. Val, I, I wanted to, to just continue broadly with the theme of the budget, but as a, as a way of looking at a much wider range of issues. And ahead of the, the October budget, Treasurer Jim Chalmers flagged a move towards a wellbeing approach. And I've got a two-part question for you, the first of which is, what does wellbeing look like from an Indigenous perspective? And I think this is something that's so incredibly important because there are so many debates about what we mean by wellbeing. If we start from an Indigenous perspective, what does that look like? Well, it's funny you should mention that because I had um, two First Nations people from Alberta. I met with them and we talked about how we see development and what we wanted to do when we had the, for example, the ca- caravan, the Minjiraba camping, we didn't want the excessive numbers of people. We wanted to bring people, we wanted to firstly make it family friendly and affordable holidays for families. We provide education programs for school children, years four to six with a message about the environment, about um, how we hold our wildlife in a high regard. Um, we got our marine scientists. We combine our language and science to educate school children about our whales, our dolphins, our dugong, turtle and koalas. Children love that. So rather than fill the campgrounds with as many people possible to make as much profit, which seems to be the tourism model, we would rather have that area 
free of a lot of people but less people spending more money and learning more about our culture and our way of life and respecting our land and our way of life. And so she said to me, well, your econ- your development is about well-being. Um, it's, it doesn't do we, – we have a population on Minjirabal, North Stradbroke Island of 2,200 people. I think a third, at least a third at any time would be First Nations people. We get anything up to 80,000 tourists staying per year and 200,000 day trippers a year to our community. And a lot of the time those people have don't have any regard for the history of the island or the beautiful culture or the beautiful past or even the stories for all of our trees, all of our lakes, all of our areas, all of our animals. Um, a lot of people don't hold that. So that's why we thought we would focus on school children and they lap it up. So that's where we've gone in terms of well-being. Um, and we want to set aside areas for our people because you look at, for example, the Grand Canyon. I look at Indigenous tourism, what is it, you know? Um, you look at the Grand Canyon and how they set aside that area because people, the idea of tourism is about travel and leisure. And that's another thing that came out from the Industrial Revolution. And so people sort of discovered the Grand Canyon and thought it's a great place to go because people like to have that excitement and something that makes you scared and things like that, adventure tourism and things like that. So they took away the traditional owners who belonged to the Grand Canyon, relegated them to about 50 of land. They took nearly 40 years to fight for the right to get some of the profit associated with the 4 million people a year who visit that area, which was always a sacred site for those people. So in terms of well-being, having 4 million people visit your sacred sites is not going to improve anybody's well-being. But everybody thinks they've got the right as a tourist to pay for leisure and travel because that's a cultural aspect that we never really had in our culture. So a lot of people say to us, well, as First Nations people, you've got to provide tourism for, we want to provide tourism on our terms. We want to develop our community on our terms. And it might be the same, what might not be the same way that they would develop it. And like I said, living close to each other with three-bedroom houses with 2.5 children is not our way. So we're designing different ways of people and people move around. I mean, Aboriginal um, people, the thing that upset the missionaries was we refused to live a sedentary lifestyle. And let's face facts, if you examine prehistory, Non-Aboriginal people didn't live a sedentary lifestyle till about eight to 10,000 years ago. And living a sedentary lifestyle saw larger areas, epidemics of disease, warlords, all sorts of interesting things started to happen when people started to be able to store food, which means they could live a more sedentary lifestyle. Um, it's not good for the environment. It wasn't good for people's health. But that's how the world, as we know it, has flourished and grown. So we try to take advantage of that and think, well, that might not be the way 
necessarily to develop or, or develop how people live. So we've had our women and particularly our younger women talk about having women's areas where we would probably build an ablution block. People can live out there however they like as long as they've got access to whatever services they want. If we could get the home ownership, people could have a cabin that you can actually move there. We've had a lot of designs made where you can have sand septic systems, but people might want to live there for three months and then move on. But everybody thinks you should live in one house the whole time. Um, And so... We're looking at various different models, men's camp, women's camp, and the young women have done horticultural courses because they want to grow lots of their food. So we can sort of think differently about how we want to live because we have our own lands. And I think that's exciting and I think that is well-being when people decide how they want to live and where they want to live. Of course, we know our children need access to education, but we could, if my grand, like I said, my granddaughter had a tablet that she used to watch and she started to talk like an American because she'd watched it so much and she was four years of age. If she can learn to talk like that, we can beam education anywhere that people choose to live for our children, especially our younger children. So we've got all these different models and ideas that we could implement particularly when you have access to your own lands and waters and that I think is something that's exciting but I can see that our younger people have many more ideas than what I could come up with in terms of how well we could live and what we can do and it doesn't mean you're going to live in a three-bedroom house with 2.5 children you might have like I've got 10 grandchildren and I was only talking to a group of Aboriginal people today and they said, when you've got spare floor, you know you've got room for people. So how about we had areas where we've got enough land and other people can stay there for some time or people want to come to North Stradbroke Island and they want to come for a holiday. That's respite. They might live in Brisbane. But the fact that they could come over and it's affordable for them to come home more often, we've seen a lot more people come home since we've got native title to what there were before. So that's well-being as far as I'm concerned, yeah. Val, I think what you've, you've just described to us demonstrates so powerfully how well-being may be different to different people. It may be different to First Nations people and there is room for multiple understandings of well-being and yeah. for multiple ways of, of living well. And Val, I said I, I had a two-part question and, and the second part of that question that I'd love to hear your thoughts on is how non-Indigenous Australians or what non-Indigenous Australians can learn by listening to Indigenous Australians about different ideas of well-being, particularly around care for country and care for community, which so many people think is important but is often not central to the way policies developed or the way we think about issues. Yeah, I think um, our when I see um, our old people on North Stradbroke Island and we had a, a drought, um, of course we've got climate change now, as we know, um, but our old people notice straight away when something's growing that never grew there before. They're so in tune with what the bush should look like what we can and can't do and what we should and shouldn't do. 
So I think a lot of people understand that we know that and we've got 47,000 years of experience. But if people see our rangers doing particular things on North Street, they criticise. Why are you cutting those trees down? Sometimes they're not native trees. Sometimes they've, the trees are growing in the wrong place and it restricts the access of the shoreline birds. But they are constantly questioning our ability to manage land. And when we got native title over Morton Island, we had some of the operators over there tell us, well, why haven't you done this and why haven't you done that? And I said, look, just stop with respect. We managed this land successfully for 47,000 years before you came. And I had a man at the Morton Bay Research Station, we had a fishing forum type of, and he said, well, how come you're allowed to fish and take whatever you like and we're not allowed? And I said, well, we managed this area for 47,000 years and within less than 200, we've got restricted access to whatever wildlife there used to be and whatever fish there was. So that's why your restrictions, but they're not ours. We knew how to balance it. We didn't take more than what we needed ever. When I was a kid, if we went fishing on North Strabroke Island, we knew we had fish for dinner. That's not necessarily the case now. So that's changed. But I think people know and understand that we're in tune with the land, but that doesn't stop people from heavily criticising any of the work that our rangers do. And because we had 70 years of mineral extraction on North Strabroke Island, um, a lot of the land is has been filled in by the tailings from the mining, which is radioactive. So some of our native tidal land is are radioactive. And a lot of our men, when you look in the bush, you think, what you're seeing is wilderness. It's not actually wilderness. It's been rehabilitated by the mining company. And so there might be too much of one type of plant that's planted and that makes it more susceptible to hot fires. So our men go and clear that land back to what it was and they're actually being charged and taken through the magistrate's court for clearing land, native title land. So that's an example of them knowing that we have 47,000 years of history but still feeling that they have to charge our men for trying to put the land back to what it was like before they mined it and supposedly rehabilitated it. So you still look for justice but I can't understand why anyone would want to put an Aboriginal man in jail for trying to clear the land back to what it was and particularly when it's native title land. It's in the wrong court for a start. It shouldn't be in the magistrate's court. It should be in the federal court. But this is our reality day to day. Val, that is such a confronting example and it speaks to just how much non-Indigenous Australia has to learn and how much we need to start listening this has been such an extraordinary discussion and there's so much left to say, but we're going to need to start to wrap up. And in ending, I'd love to hear your thoughts on current discussions around a voice to parliament and to hear how important you think that is. And also whether you think the balance is right at the moment between discussions around a voice to parliament 
and truth-telling and treaty? Uh, I, I think the nature of the way the country was settled and the nature of government, like I said, we're 3% of the population, so something has to change, right? And for to change the constitution, which was first drafted in 1901 with the idea that we were all going to die out, so we had the 1967 referendum. Now to change the constitution we have to have a referendum, which means us as 3% of the population as First Nations people have to rely on that 97% of people to vote in our favour. Now given that areas and local government authorities are resorting to certain tactics, my grandson who is in his second year at university now but was a student walks up the street in the suburbs of Brisbane to go to his friend's house and is apprehended by police and told to take his shoes off and empty his pockets out. Makes me wonder whether a lot of people think that Australia's ready for that referendum. I wonder are we ready when we're faced with that as a reality. I would like to think we can because I know we have to have the referendum to move forward as a nation because that's the nature of the way the country was settled. But I would like to think that we've got that support. I hope we have that support. But when things like that happen on a daily basis in to Aboriginal families, I just wonder, will it ever change? Val, do we need to put more emphasis on truth-telling, both the truth oh, look, of our you, history but the truth of our present? I think when you look at the powerful position even if you just look at the recent uh, Australian Wars SBS episode that was directed by Rachel Perkins, um, Rachel bravely um, confronted the war memorial and wanted to know why the only wars that were fought on Australian soil were not part of the war memorial. But by the time the second episode was aired of her three-part program on uh, Australian wars, the war memorial changed its mind. So that's part of what we have to teach Australians is the real history in this country and why that happened, how that happened and what happened because that history has been hidden from the general public and we have to mature. That's part of our maturity as a nation. Val, I think that is such a powerful note on which to end this conversation, the need for us to look honestly at our history and to think deeply yeah. about the kind of nation we want to be in the future, given the violence and the discrimination that characterises much of that history, um, at least the last couple of hundred years of it. It has been an absolute privilege to talk to you today um, and I hope you will come back again um, and join us for another conversation about these these incredibly important issues that as a nation we need to confront and we need to talk about. Val Coombs, thank you so very much. Um, no worries. Thank you. What a remarkable conversation that was with Valerie. The insights that she brings and the wisdom and knowledge that she brings to thinking about issues of justice and of reconciliation and truth-telling in Australia are so incredibly powerful. When I listened to 
the budget and to some of the investment in First Nations language and in um, injustice for First Nations people, it felt to me as though we were really moving forward as a country and making incredible progress. And yet when I hear the experiences of First Nations people and hear people such as Valerie who have such deep academic insights but also such deep personal experience, it strikes me just how far we have to go. We could learn so much by genuinely listening to and respecting First Nations peoples in this country and it really is time that we did that. We no doubt will return to some of these issues in 2023, uh, but for now I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Valerie as much as I did and that it gave you as much food for thought as it's given me. Next week we will be talking about COP27 with some of um, our favourites here on the pod who talk about climate change and environmental issues with us regularly, so please do join us again next week. We'll leave a link to the publications that we've referred to or that are relevant to the conversation today in our show notes. As always, we love hearing from you. So please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net or join us at Facebook. You can just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us. We'll be back again next week, but from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.